The views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. And welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Reflections on Public Service. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Each week, my goal here is straightforward, to introduce you to key government executives and thought leaders who are tackling significant management challenges and seizing opportunities to lead. In this series, I welcome former government executives to reflect on their public service, to offer a firsthand account on the work they did, the challenges they faced, successes they achieved, and perhaps advice they'd like to share. What does it mean to be Deputy Commissioner of GSA's Federal Acquisition Service, FAS, and Director of its Technology Transformation Services, TTS? What are the best ways we can reimagine the delivery of digital government services? and what has been the impact of innovation across the federal government. Today, I'll explore these questions and so much more with Dave Svenich, former Deputy Commissioner of the U.S. General Services Administration's Federal Acquisition Service and former Director of GSA's Technology Transformation Services. So, Dave, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So, Dave, uh, I'd like to know, can you tell us a little bit more, maybe possibly highlight your various stints in public service? Sure. Um, so uh, I've had sort of an odd set of experiences in government. Um, I've been, I worked in local government in DC for a number of years. I was the chief of staff for a council member and served as general counsel for the DC council for a number of years. Um, and then I joined the general services administration initially with uh, 18F and worked as an individual contributor, um, led the acquisition team uh, at 18F and then TTS. Um, served as the executive director of 18F, served as the assistant commissioner in the Office of Systems Management under the Federal Acquisition Service, and most recently returned back to GSA in this administration uh, as the director of the Technology Transformation Services. And that's where I'd like to kind of delve into, give folks a little bit of sense of the, the history and mission of the Federal Acquisition Service, and in particular, uh, the Technology Transformation Services. Uh, what do these organizations do to support GSA and government-wide innovation in general? You know, it's a great question. Um, and I, I find myself spending a lot of time uh, thinking about history and thinking about the history of the different uh, the different programs. And it seems that Federal Acquisition Service emerges really um, and the need for the federal acquisition program sort of emerges in the post-World War II era um, and the need to support and sustain a, a, a more you know, complicated and more engaged federal government. Obviously, the growth of infrastructure in the United States, uh, the, uh, the Cold War and the emergence of the Cold War sort of creates this need for uh, supply in a way that's uh, pretty novel. Um, and so the Federal Acquisition Service sort of grows out of that tradition of the post-war uh, need for supply chain management and the need for government to be able to support uh, a growing bureaucracy. 
And technology transformation services actually comes from that's a slightly later, um, though connected part of that history, which is as the government becomes uh, more bureaucratic, as the government becomes more complicated, um, the public's interaction with the government continues to, to uh, gain that complexity as well. Um, and I, I like to draw the the origins of TTS and technology transformation services back to 1966, um, when GSA established a thing called the Federal Information Center um, down in Atlanta, Georgia. And the purpose was to allow for the public just to interact directly with, uh, you know, with a public servant um, and have that public servant help them navigate what was then seen as an increasingly complex government um, and really just help sort of cut through the red tape um, and get get people connected to the services that they that they need to. And so, um, you know, I, I think that that sort of history is important because it actually informs all of the things that happen through the, you know, from the 1960s on. Um, and you see the emergence and sort of the uh, the 2000s of the, the internet era and sort of the growth of these um, systems like the integrated award environment and SAM and regulations.gov and USA.gov, which was then first gov, um, emerging all the way through the uh, early 2010s um, and the establishment of programs like data.gov and uh, search.usa.gov and FedRAMP, the establishment of programs like 18F and the Presidential Innovation Fellows and Centers of Excellence, um, and on to the current day, where we have even even uh, more programs like login.gov, the U.S. Digital Core, and more um, as we as we continue to think about how to connect the government uh, to the public more effectively. That's terrific. You know, it's a great historical context. And a wonderful connection about the mission and history. So, Dave, you were both Deputy Commissioner of FAST and Director of TTS. So how did you juggle both roles? And and more importantly, Dave, how were both titles and roles and portfolios complementary to one another? Yeah, so um, a, a bit of a candid admission. Um, I, I really I didn't so much juggle it as really as focus my energies on the TTS side. That said, I think that there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of interaction and a lot of support that goes uh, between between the Federal Acquisition Service and Technology Transformation Services. So, on the practical side, we share a lot of customers and we share a lot of uh, opportunities and challenges. So, working really closely with the IT category as as they're putting together contract vehicles for agencies on emerging technology and, and existing uh, existing sort of cloud computing services. Um, we, you know, we have a great partnership with, uh, with Laura and, and the whole team at ITC on things like artificial intelligence and bringing uh, the TTS's technical expertise to bear with the procurement expertise of FAS. We also have a lot of interconnections just in, in terms of the day-to-day -day work. So I worked really closely with Mark Lee in the Office of Policy and Compliance to make sure that TTS and and fast, we're uh, we're working closely in terms of good technology policy, um, and and as well as good acquisition policy as it relates to tech. So, um, spending a lot of time sort of at the intersection between fast and TTS, and both programs really I think work best when we're working together. But personally, I, I'll admit that most of my attention in the last uh, in the last twenty months had been focused really on TTS specifically. That, that's terrific. So, in that role. Dave, over the last year and a half or so, what were some of the key management challenges you faced in in these previous roles, and and how did you seek to address those challenges? Yeah, so maybe to to give a little bit more um, sort of background about why I returned to TTS um, and and how that informed I think the management challenge. You know, I I, I returned to TTS in 2021. 
Um, and at that time, we were, you know, the, the president announced uh, sort of an intention to address sort of four key crises in the United States. Um, you know, the, the pandemic, um, the, the economic challenges, the uh, challenge with the climate um, and uh, racial uh, racial equity in the United States. And one of the things that became abundantly clear is that technology would be necessary for all of those things. It would be critical to have a strong uh, digital uh, and technology underpinning to, to address those crises. And when I sort of looked at the environment, there was a couple of things that really stood out. Um, one was that we had some really big successes. So, you know, I, I try to try to find the bright spots. And one of the bright spots of the the past, um, you know, the, during the pandemic was uh, the FedRAMP program. Um, so the FedRAMP program, for listeners who aren't totally familiar, uh, is, is a program that helps agencies reuse um, federal, what are called ATOs or authorities to operate to allow agencies to use commercial cloud computing uh, services, your Amazon Web Services, your Google Clouds, your Azures, um, as well as software as a service, things like, you know, uh, Slack or um, even, you know, Microsoft Teams. So you've got the FedRAM program um, that had been around for just about a decade, but I, I like to think that uh, without FedRAMP, uh, the government would have not been nearly as effective in the pandemic as it was. The reason that uh, I, I believe that is because, you know, we are here communicating over over distance. We're able to engage and collaborate um, across the Internet. Um, that pattern hadn't really existed for, for government. You know, in the pre-pandemic era government, it was very much an in-person environment. People were uncomfortable with uh, with virtual uh, virtual meetings. You might get a teleconference, but that, that was it. Now, because you had these technology uh, platforms that were available to agencies, you could reuse those ATOs, you could actually get that collaboration in place. Um, it allowed the government to quickly adopt cloud service, uh, cloud computing uh, technologies at massive scale. Um, so programs like FedRAMP were a win. Um, and yet, um, one, of the, one of the unfortunate lessons of the pandemic is that the government had not been very effective at delivering sort of direct public digital services. Um, so we saw that in programs that had really struggled to, to get off the ground in the pandemic, um, really challenges in terms of making sure that it was accessible uh, to to folks as they were trying to navigate some of these programs. One of the things I learned through that sort of that comparison, well, why did FedRAMP work, but why did some of these other direct digital services uh, fail to work? Um, what I realized is that there was in, in some respects the wrong emphasis over the years that we had been focusing on building individual agency capacity over the past decade. You know, how do we help this agency get you know more effective at doing agile, or how do we get help this agency um, bring user-centered design to to the table, um, and less of a focus on how do we help agencies work across boundaries with each other. Um, programs like FedRAMP were really effective at bridging those uh, those boundaries. Um, some of our other programs and some of the focus over the over the past decade um, had been really around. Um, individual agencies, individual programs, and less of sort of that connective tissue um, that allows agencies to work effectively. And, and where you really saw breakdowns for the public is, you know, the government, again, it's complicated. Nobody, nobody has to under, nobody should have to understand the organiz organizational chart of the, of the federal government. Um, and 
and services because they're administered by oftentimes state or local governments or you know sometimes cross multiple agency boundaries that's where things really get uh, sort of mucked up um, and so from a management challenge perspective um, the hardest thing to to navigate was you had all of these incredible incredibly great programs um, in, that had emerged over years um, in, at TTS. And yet all of the programs individually were clearly less important than the sum of those programs. If you look at the magnitude of the challenges we're facing, having you know a handful of engineers tackling one particular agency problem in isolation of the rest of the rest of those the, the challenges that the country is facing um, seemed like the wrong wrong focus. And so where I try to spend my energy um, is to identify sort of the, the, the and, and to, to really imagine what that new vision could be for TTS and for, for government technology um, that embraced that cross-agency um, relationship and really invested more deeply in the, the direct public service interactions that, uh, that had been missing uh, through the pandemic. It's terrific perspective, Dave. You know, and it's a wonderful uh, sort of segue into my next question, which was when you were doing, you kind of alluded to it in your response, but I wanted to delve a little deeper, maybe take a different tact. When you were in the your last role as director of TTS, uh, what were your key focus areas and core priorities during that time? Yeah, I mean, it's incredible what uh, what some time time and success can can do. Um, you know, in I, I had been the executive director of ATF from uh, from 2016 through part of 2017, um, and had been with ATF from 2015 to 20 uh, in, in that time. And you know, one of the things that's interesting is, and I spent a lot of time reflecting on this too. Um, when I joined the federal government in 2015, the word agile was just like nobody could imagine you could have government that even thinks in terms of agile. I, I remember going to conferences and, and sitting on panels, and people say, "Government can't do agile." You know, and fast forward to 2022, yeah, everyone accepts the fact that governments both can and should be doing Agile, and, and basically everyone claims that they are. And so one of the things that's really interesting is that, um, you know, I, I joked with uh, with Claire Marderana, the federal CIO, that at some points the civic technology, uh, you know, sort of movement um, won, um, and it sort of reminded me of Robert Redford from The Candidates, you know, wins the election, and there's big, big focus on winning the election, and it's like, we won. Now what? And so I think where we were um, and where I was in, in sort of the the period from 2015 to 2017 with with 18F and TTS before um, was really about trying to to bring um, slightly different perspectives to what government's delivery needed. Um, you know, like I said, agile was not not a thing. The idea of user centered design and sort of customer experience at that time was pretty novel. Um, you know, really outside of uh, outside of pockets of in individual agencies and sort of communities that emerged in, in the the e-government space the the rhetoric of civic uh, excuse me of customer experience um, was really pretty not common um, it was it was uh, pretty um, isolated and so the the focus had been how do we bring this sort of uh, these concepts to the table how do we prove that they can work um, and how do we help agencies implement them and so 
I do think back pretty fondly of those those early days for for my, my tenure at GSA because we had a lot of really incredible wins. We helped you know the Federal Election Commission to completely refresh its uh, its presence. We helped Treasury with the establishment of USA Spending.gov and sort of see the emergence of, and implementation of the Data Act, um, which you know in some respects was the first government wide agile project. And you know you had a series of these uh, these efforts programs that are now really effective, like the U.S. web design system and the creation of login.gov, um, those all happened, uh, in, in, like I said, that mid to late 2020s. Um, so that was a lot of the focus before. Personally, I also spent a lot of time and energy on trying to position 18F specifically focused on our, our agency partners, um, really trying to get out of the quote unquote innovation space and, and moving it more toward the um, to the to the value delivery space, that had been a lot of my focus as 18F director. You know, I think there were some uh, some just practical realities and sort of financial constraints, and maybe we could talk a little bit about that uh, and sort of how that still continues to play out today. But a lot of the energy at, at that time was to say, how do we prove that some of this works, um, and how do we how do we really help partners implement it? So, Dave, I, I want to sort of shift gears a little bit from your general priorities during that time, and and maybe highlight for the rest of some of our conversation, uh, some key wins or key initiatives that you were uh, involved in. And one particular uh, was, could you tell us more about the work you folks did with the Air Force's Kessler Run? How does this effort represent a successful partnership and proof of concept for further website development? Yeah, that's a, that's a great, uh, great question. So, this is this is actually a project that we haven't talked a lot about publicly. In some respects, it's not my story to tell uh, all the details, but I'll, I'll tell you I'll tell you some of the highlights, and I think it's indicative of the power of uh, of, of both TTS, but but critically what it what it looks like when TTS works uh, across agency boundaries. So we had an urgent need to build a web application that was going to have massive scale, and. The challenge typically with whatever you deal with government is, is usually not the application itself. The applications are pretty standard fare um, stuff. Where things get really difficult is when you start to think about applications at, at orders of magnitude of traffic that are that are larger than what an agency might get on a day-to-day. And so we have within TTS a program called cloud.gov. And we met with the cloud.gov team and this this agency to say, all right, we, we need to prepare for this level of traffic. Are, are we able to do that? And to put it in perspective, like the traffic that we were imagining, you know, is, is tens of millions of users and sort of just significant volume coming in all sort of all at the same time. And it required a fair amount of sort of effort in a relatively short amount of time with it with the cloud.gov team and with this application development team and we thought we could do it we felt like we could get i think i don't remember the exact numbers but i think it was something like 100 100 million requests in an hour or some ridiculously large number for uh, for government purposes and we we did it um, but one of the things that we wanted to do is to say, well, how do we how do we not just satisfy ourselves? How do we really reassure ourselves that we're going to to get that level of scale? And so we worked with the Kessel Run um, and specifically one of their chaos engineering teams to do um, to do some real load testing and to um, not just uh, have ideal conditions for 
resiliency, but sort of suboptimal experiences, real, you know, really challenging in, in environments to see if we could handle the load. Um, and so it was really great to work with uh, with with the folks at Kessel Run who had that experience of of doing some of that that chaos engineering and um, real challenging environments and be able to improve our product as a result. Um, and we were able to, to sustain those loads, at least on the application that we built. So, like I said, there's there's more to the story that it, that's really I'm not at liberty to share. Um, but it was an example of the of, of great cross agency partnership and collaboration, um, and and the ability to, truly of the TTS uh, delivery teams um, that could uh, that could under pretty pretty tight timelines and pretty difficult circumstances deliver a pretty incredible product. I understand you can't really delve into it, and I appreciate the fact that you, this is not your story to tell. But I was wondering, just you know, given your perspective. Uh, to what extent does the that the the approach that they pursued demonstrate how federal agencies can come together to improve that customer experience you talked about earlier, enhance digital capabilities, and ensure an effective, equitable, and secure data infrastructure for the public? Yeah, you know, it's um, there's actually a, one of the things I like to to do is I, I like to think at three different levels when I think about um, sort of that interagency work. Um, and so I'll, if you if you'll indulge me, I, I'll sort of lay lay out the, those that structure. So um, I, I think of them typically in platforms, products, and people. Um, and so at platforms, I and and candidly, this is a bit of a not quite the way that the the you know the the industry would term a platform, but I'll I'll, I'll ask you to work with me on it. Um, so we have a number of platforms within TTS. We have um, you know we have USA Gov. We, we now have SAM.gov, we have regulations.gov, data.gov, challenge.gov, and so on. Um, and these platforms all have the same sort of property, which is that they're public facing, but they're also cross agency. Um, so if you're an individual agency, um, it would be ridiculous for you to establish your own FedBizOps. There's a FedBizOps for that. It's FedBizOps. And so you have agencies that work with the integrated award environments to provide the, the contract opportunities on SAM. And that cross-agency but public-facing platform um, is a big part of what, what I think of, of TTS's strength. Beneath the platforms uh, and just beneath it from like a technology perspective are what I call it products. Um, and the products are things like login.gov or the US web design system or search.gov or cloud.gov. And these products all support the delivery of public facing um, and sometimes non-public facing uh, applications that are really critical for that delivery. And you get some of the benefits of those shared products across different governance uh, experiences. So login.gov, the benefit of having a login.gov is that you can go from one agency website to another agency website and have a consistent authentication and, and identity proofing experience. That's pretty powerful. Same thing with U US web design system. You have um, a consistent look and feel and consistent set of standards that you can use um, when you're navigating uh, federal websites. Um, so those products also enable that cross-agency interaction and collaboration um, and create communities around it. And then beneath those products, you have the people. And, and people is where I categorize programs like the Presidential Innovation Fellow or 18F or Centers of Excellence and, or and the, the U.S. Digital Core. Um, and the people end up creating these networks, you know, 
one of the benefits of the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program is that we get all these incredible folks from outside of government and bring them into government. And what ends up happening is that many of them stay um, and they stay and they connect with each other as part of this cohort model and they end up becoming um, their own set of community to, to help, uh, help each other deliver more effectively. And so I think of interagency collaboration as using sort of that entire stack of platform products and people and finding ways to really create those bridges, to create that sense of, uh, of partnership, uh, create that sense of community uh, that allows for, for effective delivery. And here, one of the things that I, I like to mention too, as I go back to history, you know, there's this long tradition in the federal government of these communities of practice. You have um, the web managers community practice, which sort of emerged in the, like I said, the early 2000s as part of the e-government era. And these folks, got together and dealt with the same challenges and like how do we do with this how do you how do you ensure accessibility on this page how do you enable good search practices and those uh we we at tts supported those communities of practice through our digital gov program um, but we also really wanted to participate them as as full partners and participants um and that that i think that experience of community of practice that sense of uh, of connectivity across agency boundaries is what uh, what allows for better better delivery outcomes what are the best ways we can reimagine the delivery of digital government services? We'll explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business Through Government Hour returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Reflections on Public Service with Dave Zvinich, former director of the U.S. General Services Technology Transformation Services. Remaining on this idea of getting into some of the initiatives that you were involved in, and to the extent you can share with us, I understand you're out of the role now, but the extent that you wish to share, I'd like to switch gears a little bit to what I understand to be 14 projects that were selected to receive funding from the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. Perhaps you could highlight, if you feel comfortable, some of those projects and why they were selected. And you know, before you left, were there any progress reports you'd like to offer? Yeah, it's a great point. And, you know, I, I can't I can't get too far into the discussion without um, taking a moment to really praising Congress for the enactment of the, the American Rescue Plan. Um, you know, the the ARP, or as we called it, um, really 
created an opportunity for some pretty transformative change, not just for not just for TTS, but really across the federal technology ecosystem. And I would like to think about um, sort of a couple of different categories of our of our investment. We received $150 million in investment for the Federal Citizen Services Fund. Um, and my my goal from 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 receiving those funds um, was to make sure that we really focus on sort of three areas. You know, first is what I call the recovery, um, which is, you know, we had we're in the midst of a pandemic. We we've got urgent needs that need to get addressed. How do we how do we make sure that we're recovering? And then uh, second bucket was rebuild. Um, how do we rebuild some of these services that have been neglected over years uh, that hadn't gotten the sort of investments that they've needed? Um, what would it look like to rebuild them so they could be the the vibrant and robust proper uh, properties that um, they originally conceived to be? Um, and the last category was uh, was reimagine um, and spending some time and energy to reimagine what these you know, these services could look like so that you could have transformative differences for for the public. And so there are a couple of highlights. Um, you know, one one that I really think is notable is that we had, you know, as I mentioned, FedRAMP before. Um, FedRAMP was an incredibly successful program during the pandemic, but it didn't receive any additional funding. Um, and so we started to see increasing backlogs. We started to see some, some slower cycle times. Um, and the American Rescue Plan enabled us to significantly uh, increase the throughput and reduce the reduce the cycle times as we were allowing uh, agencies and the J Joint Authorization Board to process federal um, ATOs for these cloud service providers. And what that basically means is that you're getting you know better technology into government faster. We also had programs like the USA Gov, where we put significant uh, funding into reimagining what the USA Gov could experience could be as part of the federal front door to to government, or as, as I like to call it, the no wrong door to government, really investing in sort of the next generation of, of USA Gov as this cross agency and sort of uh, information and, and um, services access point. Another program that was birthed out of the American Rescue Plan is the U.S. Digital Corps. So I mentioned that a couple of times, but uh, this is a program that brought um, the next generation of technologists uh, into government, or early career technologists uh, to to federal space. Um, and you know, one of the things that's kind of remarkable is that um, this program, you know, the original idea for it happened at the beginning of the administration, and you know, we already have our first cohort of fellows in place. And so that that could only really have happened with the uh, with the capital investment from um, from the American Rescue Plan. Um, but that another another thing too that that came out of the American Rescue Plan is that the Technology Modernization Fund received a billion dollars of investment. Um, and we at TTS were really fortunate that we were able to get um, a couple of investments from the TMF, including an, a, a historic $187 million investment for, for login.gov. And that that has really paid a lot of dividends. You know, we have login.gov has really grown um, over the past uh, past year and a half, um, both in terms of size and in terms of impact. You can check out the analytics on on, on analytics.usa.gov, but the, the amount of traffic that is now running through login.gov is pretty extra extraordinary. People are using it. Um, it is going in more agencies and, and really having a significant impact. And one of the reasons we're able to scale it as, as quickly and as effectively as we have uh, is because of that historic investment from the Technology Modernization Fund. Um, and so, you know, I think 
what that proved to me in some respects is that, you know, when, when Congress, um, you know, it doesn't take a ton of money, you know, in the, in the context of federal IT spending, you know, 150 million here, 187 million there, um, isn't the sort of billions that we're used to often thinking in terms of, um, but it had pretty significant return um, on those on those investments um, through programs like I said, FedRAMP, USAGov, uh, Login.gov, and US Digital Corp. And and there are others as well. Um, though, again, uh, some of these stories I'll, I'll leave to to GSA to tell. Well, that's a great point. You know, uh, given your background, Dave, what have you sort of ascertained is the best way? we can, agencies, can deliver digital government services that always keeps in mind transparency, security, and efficiency. Are there any, I don't know, best practices, any success stories, any good way to reimagine these things? Totally. Um, you know, I, I actually start from a, from a principle here, and it's, um, I, I don't remember who popularized it, but it's it's one that I've one that I've thought about a lot over the years is the idea of the red queen hypothesis. Um, and the, the red queen hypothesis is um, it's, it, it owes its origins to evolutionary biology. Um, and it's a specific reference to Alice in Wonderland. Um, and the idea is that you have Alice who's being dragged by the red queen and they're running um, and they're running so fast. Um, and at some points they're, they're running and they end up in the same place where they were before. Um, and, you know, Alice goes to the queen like, what, why, I thought we were running. Why are we in the same place? Um, and the Red Queen says, well, around here, you have to run twice as fast to just stay where you are. Um, and one of the things that that teaches is that in technology, things are evolving all the time, whether you like it or not. Um, government tech doesn't operate just in the context of government tech. It operates in the context of tech. And so there are all kinds of changes happening in the technology industry that influence and inform how the government has to deliver our services. You know, if all we had to do is just keep the lights on, so to speak, it, it might not be such a challenge, but you actually have to move twice as fast just to keep the lights on. And so one of the lessons that that I think is really important as a, as a best practice um, is actually to try to do less. There's a really significant instinct to want to like own the entire stack, to do it all, sort of ma manage it yourself. But you'll never keep up. You'll never be able to maintain the the pace um, that's needed to keep up with the evolutionary trends um, in um, in technology. And so, to me, the best way that agencies should think about getting the sort of best practices in security, accessibility, user experience, and so on and so forth, um, is to actually invest in. Uh, or rather divest its responsibility for parts of the stack and invest in partnerships with other companies or other programs that do this really well. You know, I've mentioned US web design system a couple of times and I'll do it again here. You know, the US web design system enables, you know, billions of, of views per year. And the thing about that is it invests in accessibility practices and invests in sort of the modern web, uh, web standard. So as browsers update, the US web design system updates and agencies can get the benefit of that updated US web design system without having to re-architect and, and do that work itself. I think a greater interdependence and a greater awareness that you can't own the entire experience yourself um, is, is actually what's necessary to, to keep up with the, with the changing landscape. I'd like to stay on this uh, topic of uh, sort of a different initiatives that you were involved in while uh, your last stint at GSA. And the, the next one I wanted to talk about is the partnership between 
uh, GSA's 18F and the state of Wisconsin's Department of Workforce Development, specifically on IT modern, modernization procurement efforts. Uh, can you tell us more, to the extent you're comfortable, about uh, w what this entailed? What was the genesis for, for, for prompting this collaboration and the end goal associated with it? Sure. Um, you know, it happens to be a, a project that's near and dear to my heart. Um, uh, you know, I actually reside in Wisconsin. Um, as I look right now, I'm staring at the Bucky Badger bobblehead. So uh, the Badger states something that uh, is near and dear to my heart. And this program uh, and this or the collaboration between um, 18F and Wisconsin Department of Workforce Development um, was really born out of sort of the the post or you know midst of the pandemic around unemployment insurance um, and the challenges that agencies and state state governments had in terms of adopting modern technology and specifically and this is this is maybe a bit of a tie into sort of the federal acquisition service the ability to acquire technology more effectively um, like I said, the federal government has been doing this for for a number of years. We've taken the practices of of doing agile delivery and working sort of in modular contracting to heart. Um, state governments have not uh, had as much experience or as many resources that the federal government has had to be able to do this work. Um, so it was a real opportunity um, to work with the the state who had really intense procurement de uh, deadlines. Um, who had significant programmatic challenges um, just due to the fact that, again, you had orders of magnitude greater demand on unemployment insurance in the midst of the pandemic. Our goal was to ensure that they were able to structure their procurement in a way uh, that would give, uh, give give the government the ability to manage vendor delivery more um, sustainably and more productively. And at the same time, um, leave the state in, in a position where it didn't rely on the federal governments to be able to do that work uh, post our engagement. So it's a great partnership. It's it's the sort of thing that um, that ATF has uh, has done really effectively over the years. There's a guide that they put out called the de-risking guide to federal. I think it's federal procurement, um, but it's de-riskingguide.atf.gov. That sort of framework of helping agencies and state governments uh, reduce the risk as they go through these uh, these really important procurement processes um, is something that ha has been sort of the, the bread and butter of, of, of 18F over the years. And it's just, a, just another example of a great partnership. Yeah, I like to stay, Dave, on 18F. And why is it such an important asset across the federal government? Is there anything more that could be done and it, that they should stop doing perhaps? And what does the future hold in your perspective uh, for 18F? One of the things that I, I think was, there's actually a fair amount of internal controversy over this, but I, I continue to believe that it's the it's the right decision is, I, you know, I had really focused I, I, and tried to focus 18F's energy um, less on projects like the state of Wisconsin, although you know has great outcomes, and and focus more of its energy on cross-agency work involving high-impact service providers. Um, so you know, as part of the customer experience executive order, and and really out of the work that had emerged over over many years involving this establishment of these high-impact service providers. I really tried to move 18F to shift uh, its energy um, toward working with what we call HISPs. And part of this is because what I started to realize when I when I came back is that, unfortunately, because of the way that 18F had been funded and because of the way that most people think about technology delivery, 
even to this day, and this is actually something where, you know, we've started to have this conversation with OMB and Congress and others to change the conversation. But so much of 18F's work, so much of COE's work have been driven by agencies coming to 18F and saying, I have a problem, help me with the problem. And that requires a couple of things to be true. One, it has to, an agency has to have budget. Um, an agency has to recognize that it needs a problem. Um, it has to recognize that, you know, 18F or COE could be part of the solution um, and to really engage um, at the right time. But none of this actually was prioritizing the public need, right? It's all, all like an agency's need. It's all about, okay, is, does an agency have a problem? Um, and that lack of prioritization that's that's centered around public need um, is, you know, it's it's part of the way that the funding model and sort of the organizational dynamics play out, but it's not the best thing for the public. Um, and so for from my perspective, what can really be a game changer um, and, and something I'm really eager to see Congress and OMB and GSA work together on, uh, uh, on accomplishing is to create mo funding models that are built around the idea of public need first, um, and then having 18F flow to the most high impact work among those high impact service providers, rather than sort of one-off enga agency engagements um, that that sort of has been the bread and butter before. Um, there's obviously going to be a need for um, sort of elements that don't involve specific high impact service providers, um, but really focusing that as, a, as your primary space of, of delivery um, should, you know, in general lead to better um, high impact work by virtue of the fact that these programs both touch many Americans, but they also have deep impact on certain affected populations as well. That's an excellent idea. Well, so Dave, you know, staying on this um, idea of, of different initiatives, I was wondering about the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program. Uh, do you see any changes or any enhancements going on there? Yeah, so we... Um, you know, I'm really, really grateful. We were able to bring in um, a new director for the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program, um, Rebecca La Madrid. She's been really excellent in trying to bring more of a focus for for PIF on, on, like I said, those connections across agencies. We have this incredible track record at, at PIF of bringing folks in from outside of government, putting them in sort of challenging environments and then letting them succeed. But we haven't made the investments, I think, um, over the years, and, and this is due to just like funding and, and sort of the, the the focus, we haven't invested on sort of the the experience aspects of PIF, you know, the fellow experience and the agency experience of working with fellows. Um, and so Rebecca has been really working to um, to improve the operational focus for for PIF and to create sort of that more consistent experience across agencies and across the uh, for PIFs. That focus, you know, it's not the sort of thing that that creates headlines, but it creates real lasting impact. Um, and so that, that's been something that I'm, I'm pretty jazzed about. But you know, the other thing too, that I, I can't take credit for this, it's really the, it's the credit of the, the PIF leadership from, you know, from years, years and years, we continue to attract and recruit and retain and even, you know, through courses of multiple administrations, incredibly talented, incredibly diverse, uh, incredibly committed um, folks from outside of government bring them in to really challenging environments um, and um, and they they continue to have just dramatic uh, impact as PIFs. And then 
like I said, they, they tend to leave a PIF program. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but let's call it a plurality of PIFs uh, end up choosing to stay in federal service, which is just, you know, it's kind of the an unexpected benefit, I think, you know, we, we didn't say, well, the point here is to, to create a, a new pipeline into government. Um, that's not really the, the purpose, but, you know, it's, it speaks to the, um, to the mission space that we, that we operate in. Um, and it really speaks to the sort of the mindset of, of PIFs of really trying to tackle the hardest problems. And, and many of them tend to be in, in government. It's interesting. So, you know, as a follow-up, Dave, why, why do you think it attracts that kind of quality of person? Is it because it's it is proof in the concept there? You know, I think, uh, you know, we talk a lot about this in the context of technology. There's, you know, there's a lot of money to be made on like, you know, improving the click rate, you know, and sort of getting more eyeballs and sort of doing the, the traditional, uh, traditional work of tech. Um, but it's not satisfying. It's not nourishing work, um, you know, in, in the sense that, um, it really changes the community that you live in for the better. Um, and, you know, the, I, one of the things that I really enjoyed is that in my job as, as TTS director, I could go to another agency and say, look, you know, if I make this sale, it's not because I'm making a sale. It's because I believe it's the right thing for the public. You know, I don't get a, I don't get a bonus, <laughs> you know, if I make, if I close this deal, if I fail in delivery, I have to go up to the Hill just as much as you do. Um, and so the, I think, the the thing that's really great about public service is that everyone's in it, um, you know, for for the right reason, um, and that that focus on on public need and that that emphasis on public service when when you hit it right, um, creates just incredible conditions for uh, for um, for folks that wants to, like I said, uh, make a difference in their community, make a difference in the public, and and have impact. You know, the the benefit of the federal government is that sometimes you get to look work with laws of large numbers. Um, and, you know, you can tell someone, look, you're going to be working on a program that's going to affect, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of people um, and and have the, you know, have the population to to, to back it. Um, you know, sometimes you might work at a startup and they're going to say, oh, we're going to have a billion dollar, you know, a billion dollar market valuation one day. Um, but, you know, most startups don't. Um, the, the truth is that, um, in, in the government, you're going to have the broad impact that often comes with, uh, with a federal agency of, uh, or a federal program of record. Um, and that, that can be pretty exciting too. Dave, just one last area I want to explore, and that is uh, the work of the IT Modernization Centers of Excellence. Well, what can you tell us about that, and what does the future hold for this initiative? Yeah, so the COEs, um, the COEs have, were, were actually new for me when I'd come back into government. Um, you know, I, I had they had started just just either before I'd left or, you know, just around the time that I was leaving. Um, and so I didn't have a whole lot of um, experience with the COE. But, you know, they are just an incredible group of, uh, of technologists um, and committed public servants. And they've had just pretty remarkable wins, both in sort of like the complex sort of enterprise transformation work, um, as well as emerging tech. I, you know, I actually noted that there was a, a SAMI award for, a former COE, uh, you know, employee. And, you know, he's, that's one of the things I think is really great um, is that it's like the PIF program. You get, you get folks um, to sort of work in really difficult and challenging places, 
But unlike the PIF program, a lot of these folks started in government or came from government. So they have that experience of what it might look like in a different agency. Um, they might have that background of having been successful or, you know, having been unsuccessful in other agencies, um, but learning the, you know, sort of the tricks of the trade, as it were, um, and being able to bring that expertise to bear with other agencies. And so the COE program is, uh, is one of those programs that, um, uh, you know, has been um, sort of a really incredible place for agencies to get to get access to great technologists. Um, and, you know, from from where I sit, it's, um, you know, just incredible, incredible people delivering really meaningful work. What has been the impact of innovation across the federal government? We'll explore this question and so much more on our special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Reflections on Public Service with Dave Zvinich, former director of the U.S. General Services Technology Transformation Services. So, Dave, uh, uh, given your stints in federal service in your last one, what has been the impact in your perspective about innovation across the federal government? You know, and this is where I like to situate our, our work. Um, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, stretching back to the 1960s. I, I think about our work in sort of a, in a long term. Um, you know, we, I, given the fact that TTS and sort of now has been around for over 50 years in sort of different incarnations, it compels me to think about the fact that we're going to be doing this work for another 50 years. You know, regulations.gov is the thing that we have today. Um, my guess is 20 years from now, there's still going to be the need for agency regulations and still going to need the need for public comment on regulations. You know, forecast 40 years from now, my guess is the government's still going to be buying things um, and probably going to be buying things uh, using, uh, you know, a common registry like SAM.gov. So I, I think one of the interesting aspects is that you know, innovation is both what's what's old is new. Um, you know, things that have been around are going to continue to have needs for the public, but we need to continue to find better ways of delivering and continuing to open new paths for for that delivery. You know, in, in sort of the spirit of what's old is new again. You know, I mentioned 1966 in the Federal Information Center. This was an in-person contact in, in Atlanta, Georgia. And obviously over the, you know, over the decades, it became increasingly you know, contact centers and phone centers and then, you know, digital webs, uh, websites. But now there's an increasing focus on omnichannel experiences. How do you not just have the federal website, but also have that connected to your contact center and even in-person in, in person interactions? Um, and so I think as we think about innovation, 
it's important to draw the improvements that we deliver and sort of the iter iterative improvements that we make, but anchor that all the time back into the public need and continue to update our own expectations for service delivery um, based on the expectations of the users that, that we serve. That's an excellent point and a nice transition to the next question I have really quickly. It's around what key areas and emerging technologies show the most promise for helping government meet mission outcomes? Um, so this is always a dangerous question because you're, you're almost always wrong. Um, but I do think that there are two technologies that are, are relatively, you know, they're no, no longer quite emerging. Um, they're like, they've emerged, but they're still relatively nascent in terms of adoption. And one of them is, um, you know, obviously we're still seeing the incredible um, explosion in capabilities out of, uh, of machine learning and artificial intelligence. OpenAI launched this thing called Whisper, which is a, um, a, a speech to text a sort of transcription tool. And it's extraordinarily remarkable. Um, it, it's, you know, I can run it on my on my laptop and be able to convert audio to text pretty, pretty reliably. And it's, you know, that sort of a thing was inconceivable a decade ago. It's happening today. And so when you start to think about the changes that have arisen from from neural networks and just general general advancements in AI ML, um, that that strikes me as an area that is going to continue to pay pay dividends. Another emerging technology, though, and this is in the category of AI ML, though it's a it's a different uh, it's a it's a slightly different subset, is areas around privacy enhancing technologies, technologies like homomorphic encryption or uh, federated learning. Um, these types of what are called PETs or privacy enhancing technologies hold a lot of promise for the government because one of the challenges in government is that there is so much information and so much data, but it is so siloed in terms of agencies um, sort of structures. Um, and I think that PETs hold promise to allow for more confidence in our operability among agency systems. Um, and at the same time, um, protect the expectations and the privacy rights of of the public that we serve. So I think that those those two areas um, strike me as both technologies that have that have emerged, so to speak, but uh, are still a relatively early stage adoption for the federal government. The other question I have, Dave, is around um, as agencies look to modern technologies um, and methodologies to improve that experience that you talked about, the public's experience with government, what are some of the common challenges being faced across agencies that you saw during your tenure? And are there any specific successes you'd like to share and highlight solutions that make sense? Great question. You know, I think one of the areas of, of struggle, and this is common across agencies, um, is we still don't have really good expectations or practices or um, norms around engagement of users and as part of sort of usability testing or user research, there's still a strong tendency in government to build things and ask you ask users later. And instead of doing ongoing user discovery, ongoing uh, research, and, and doing it in a way that's equitable, um, and that that takes into consideration the fact that the government has for, you know, much of its history systematically excluded people from in involvement in government systems. Um, and so I think that's an area that uh, we're going to continue to see both needs for investment and, and and there's significant advancements in thinking that have happened over the last couple of years. Um, but it's it's a challenge because it is a muscle that has not been 
flexed um, as as much as it needs to be. Another area that I think is um, is probably underexplored, even in terms of like the 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 rhetoric and discussion and sort of like the the zeitgeist of the federal government is around marketing. You know, one of the things that happens outside of government is that whenever you have a product, you know, that's that's great, um, but you actually need to market it in order for people to use it. And the government doesn't think in terms of marketing very well. Um, you know, we have pockets again of people who are really good at this. Um, but you know, the the government still operates from a sort of a field of dreams mentality, which is that if you build it, they will come. And and so much of what we know to be true in in, in the 2020s um, is that people are really busy and giving attention to the government or a particular program in the government is extremely, you know, unlikely. Um, you know, my own personal lived experience about this is that, you know, I was I was able to apply for the public service loan forgiveness program, um, but I didn't know about it until months after it, you know, got got adopted. And I'm a political appointee, you know, currently serving in government. You know, there's an extraordinary amount of effort that needs to go into sort of marketing. And there's, a, you know, obviously in the private sector, there's just a ton of investment and a ton of thinking and, you know, entire industries that are built around, you know, sort of tailored marketing and messaging. Um, and that that thinking just hasn't quite made it into the government. We don't have enough people doing that sort of work. You know, and even the term, the idea of government as a marketing service is like probably anathema to, to most. And, it, you know, even it even feels a little bit off to me. Um, but the underlying principle of how do you how do you make sure that the message gets to the to the right audience is something that that needs a lot of investment. Yeah, and you know, it's an excellent point. You know, maybe the term marketing is a little bit, you know, as you said, anathema, but it's necessary to tell people what's there for them, what benefits are available for them. So, Dave, given your career, uh, your stints in government, I was wondering what are the characteristics and qualities of an effective leader, and what leadership principles inform your approach to leading? Um, you know, I think I will say that for me. I've had to hold two different thoughts in my head at the same time, um, which is that there is a significant amount of urgency to this work. If you don't show up to work, there are literally millions of people who will, for better or for worse, suffer uh, from your work or your lack of work. Um, and so there's a sense of urgency and a sense of need to get it done. But you have to hold that intention with the idea that, you know, there is a good and natural um, sort of, friction associated with government. These systems, they're not intended to be, you know, expedient always. They're intended to be, you know, meeting many goals that are, you know, adopted through democratic means. And so I think as a public servant, you need to be able to both recognize the need for action and bias toward action, but at the same time, hold an expectation of patience and, and a sense of grace for you know, your own contributions to that work. And for me, one of the things that I kept reminding myself is that there's a lot of work that I'm doing today um, that I will not see the benefit of, um, and not even in terms of like the next, you know, next couple of months, um, but really in the decades to come, um, the work that I'm doing today will have will have impact. And the reason I know that is because people who worked on, you know, like I said, the 19, you know, the late 1990s and early 2000s e-government act work um, is the progeny of some of the stuff that I was working on today. Um, and so I think having that both long-term perspective, but also the short-term bias to action is what um, what really 
uh, separates the good from the great. That's a terrific perspective, you know, and, and as we almost close this conversation, I, I'd be remiss in not asking during your federal career, Dave, how did you seek and how have you sought to create a culture of innovation, you know, challenging those old ways of doing business while expanding and invariably, given your innovation area, the, the risk appetite of your office. And are there any lessons you'd like to share with us? Sure. Um, my, you know, I, I, I haven't used this line recently, but I used to use it all the time, <laughs> which is that the government isn't really afraid of failure. Um, you know, we say, oh, a government can't fail. Well, the government's actually pretty comfortable with failure. The government is really challenged by failing unpredictably. You know, it's like if, if there's if there's something that's been done for decades, that's comforting. Even if it's not very good, it's comforting that it's been around for decades. Why do we do that? Well, that's how we've always done it. No one gets fired for doing it the way that people have always been doing it. That's like the, the mentality that sometimes uh, exists. But I think one of the, uh, the antidotes to that sort of thinking is to situate the user and situate the public need at, at the front. You know, when you sort of create that distance between the government and the public, it's easy to say, well, I'm going to prioritize my needs. I'm going to prioritize what feels comfortable to me. But when you're actually interacting with someone who needs something from the government or has an expectation of service delivery from the government, it's much harder to distance yourself from it. And, you know, the, the folks that experience this the most directly are, are folks on the front, you know, the front lines, your, your call center agents, your folks at the DMV who, who process your driver's license, the folks at the front lines have that sort of close proximity to user needs. And you feel the sense of um, urgency to deliver better outcomes when you're interacting with the public. Um, and so in some respects, you know, I, I often say that interaction is an opportunity to build trust um, and every interaction with the public is an opportunity for, to build trust in government. But it has a it has a salutary effect for government too, which is that with every interaction with the public creates an opportunity for, for the government to realize that we can do better um, and we can focus our energies and, and better outcomes for uh, for the public as well. Um, and so centering the centering the public's needs, centering the user, for me is is the best way to create that culture of um, uh, of innovation. Precisely because you no longer are optimizing for what's comfortable, but you're optimizing for what's going to deliver the best outcomes. Dave, the last two questions I want to combine them if you don't mind, and and they are: What will you remember most about your government service, and be most proud of? And perhaps taking that as a as a leaping off point to give advice to someone who may be thinking about a career in public service. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think for me. There are there are many 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 things that I that I'm proud of. Um, I think what I'm proudest of it's a sense of working with other committed public servants. You know, it's there are specific things where it's like, oh, that was a win. <laughs> you know, like that felt good. Um, but none of those things happen just because, like, you know, because I had some ideas because I was able to work with incredible public servants and um, folks across different divisions who had similar challenges and were excited to solve those problems. And so for me, the thing that I'm most proud of is, uh, is the fact that I was able to participate in a community that was really trying to deliver better outcomes for the public that I know that sounds sappy, but it's, it's true. When I, when I reflect back on my time, um, you know, individual projects will feel cool, but the thing that will most uh, that I'm, I'm most affected by 
is how much I've been changed by the people that I worked with and how much uh, we were able to move in common purpose for, for better outcomes to the public. Um, and so for, for folks that are considering public service, I, I said this actually publicly uh, not, not that long ago, which is that people say that public service is a sacrifice, but, and it just isn't. Public service is an opportunity to work with other really committed public servants um, who are incredibly talented individuals who are all focused on better outcomes for the public that we serve. And, and that's something that is a real opportunity and something that I just have an extraordinary amount of gratitude for personally. Well, Dave, uh, I want to thank you. Uh, for coming on today and 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 being with us and sharing your reflections on your your public service, but more importantly, I'd like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you so much. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour: Reflections on Public Service with Dave Zinich, former Deputy Commissioner of GSA's Federal Acquisition Service and former Director of its Technology Transformation Services. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. WFED Washington, WTOP-FM HD2 Washington, W283DG Sterling, WTLP-FM HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick. Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. We are nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives make informed decisions. We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition, pay benefits and retirement, the Defense Department, and federal IT. Portions pre-recorded. Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Midshipmen. We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy Athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. Our mission is helping you meet your mission.